I, the honest answer is though, but is that, but we need more women. Like we have amazing women and we need women to not give up and to keep being a little loud mm -hmm. about it. And I'll try not to get on the soapbox of all the research of just I mean, women you're in welcome general. To. We, <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll very quickly say like, Hey heroes, it's Darian, your resident string player and favorite hero. And this is Hero Talk, where we talk about real life and real women in music. Okay, let's get started. today with us on Hero Talk is Aubrey Bergauer. Also hailed as the Steve Jobs of classical music by The Observer, Aubrey is known for her results-driven, customer-centric, and data-obsessed pursuit of changing the narrative of performing arts. She has worked in managing roles for many of the leading arts organizations, um, was even the chief executor of the California Symphony, where she doubled the audience size and quadrupled the donor base. She has worked in managing roles for many leading arts organizations, Aubrey often speaks for TEDx, universities, and industry conferences around the world. And coming soon is her first book, Run It Like a Business, in February of 2024. And we are so excited to have you here today with us. There's so many awesome things to fit into your introduction. It's just, like It was hard to even choose what to say. It's so impressive, and I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we even dive into some of the amazing work you're doing now, can you give us a little bit of a background on your musical upbringing and what got you into the field that you are in today? Growing up, I was like kind of one of those quote unquote typical orchestra kids. I, I think I played in, I started off in the band and then my eighth, eighth grade year. Yeah. Won the audition for the Houston Youth Symphony. That's where I grew up. And um, so that really was like the beginning of like, the introduction and pivot to like orchestral life. And I just, I loved playing, but as much as I was driven and, you know, was super into all the things you do as a kid growing up playing your instrument seriously, it was fast forward a couple of years, my sophomore year of high school, where the youth symphony went through an executive director change. And I remember them introducing this new person to us before rehearsal one day and, you know, saying like a sentence to us kids about what that was. And it was enough for me to have the light bulb go off and say, oh, <laughs> there's a job managing this whole operation. Like, that's the job I want. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning for me. So many people don't come into arts administration until much later. And if it wasn't for that moment, I probably wouldn't have known about it as a career path either. Mm -hmm. But from then, when I went to college, I intentionally double majored in music performance and in business, knowing that the management track is what I wanted to pursue. So that was the background and that was the upbringing. And then everything else you cover, you picked up in the bio. So here we are. <laughs> well, fellow Texan, awesome. <laughs> so a little bit that I wanted to start off asking you about is I discovered you speaking like on TEDx and on Instagram and I was wondering first off is I this amazing idea that you've that you've kind of honed in on that I think is like a huge reason 
people miss out on connecting with their audiences. You talk about hindsight bias a bit. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of the ways that you think we could go about eliminating that, that bias. Sure. Hindsight bias is a phenomenon where when we as humans learn something, we forget what it's like to not know that thing. Mm -hmm. That is true for like any subject matter. We forget what it's like to not know about it. And so when we're talking about classical music, it's really hard to remember <laughs> what life was like before, you know, we knew some of these things. So for example, through some of the user experience research I've done, we hear people, smart, grown adults, they just don't have a classical music background, but are interested in it. And so we hear things like, they don't know the names of the instruments in the orchestra, mm -hmm. which you just heard me say, I played an instrument growing up, like so many of us listening to this probably have. And like, I don't remember not knowing the names of the instruments in the orchestra. That's hindsight bias. I don't mm -hmm. remember what it's like to not know. And so then through this UX research, focus group research, you know, they, if they don't know the names of the instruments in the orchestra, they really don't know what it's like. They, they really don't understand is what I'm trying to say when they read program notes, for yeah. example. Program notes talk about instrumentation. They don't, they don't know what that is. They don't know even, you know, when it's written, like, you know, here are the melody as it passes from the flutes to the violins. Maybe they know flute and violin. I don't know. But, you know, the idea is that they don't always know. And so for me, just realizing like, oh, no, this is an actual human bias that exists. And like from that singular issue stems like so many I just think challenges we face as administrators trying to make our art form and musicians trying to make our art form more welcoming, more accessible, mm -hmm. because we forget what it's like to be in those shoes, to yeah. not know, not know composer names, you know, all those kind of things. Well, I was thinking about it after like watching a couple of your, a couple of moments that you spoke on it. Like in what ways do you think we could get rid of this bias? Cause I know we do a great job of like talking about the orchestra and like children's concerts, but we don't do that in, you know, a quote unquote adult concerts. I've even brainstormed like, would a glossary work? Or is that seen like as to, would someone take that as like belittling or like, why don't you, why don't you think I would know? Like, what would you, in your mind, would be an answer to fixing that problem besides just better music education in school systems? That's a great question. So what's so interesting to me is that like picking up right where you just left off education and our public school systems, we say, as an industry, you know, we need new audiences, we need younger audiences. And yet we also say as an industry, part of the reason for decline in our audiences is because of the decline in public music education in this country. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment where I realized like, why do I preach that, which I believe is part of the reason for the decline, at least not all of it, but part of it. Why do I preach that? And yet I've done nothing to change how I talk about until the research I just shared, but until it, like to some point in my career, I was like, I had done nothing to change how I talk about our product. And it was like, Aubrey, get your head out of the sand. Like, come on. And so to the earlier part of your question, like, do we just talk about our art like it's a children's concert or what do we do? In some ways, yes, not in a um, demeaning way, but think about it. The way we approach our children's concerts, we define terms or we use other language that communicates what we're trying to say without having to use the vocabulary words Grown adults who now do not have the education that generations prior had, that's the level they're at too. Mm -hmm. So I think that part of the solution is, yeah, act like it's a children's concert. Not in, again, not in a demeaning way, but in a way of like, that's the baseline knowledge we're working with here. Yeah. So 
And that's, and that is how we start to overcome that hindsight bias of, oh, right. They don't know. They don't know. That's it. There's no judgment. There's no shame. They just don't know. So that's one way. Another way is, um, the way we make our websites, the way we do write our program notes, all these things, like we do, we have so much written communication. If you think about anything we do as we're producing music, I already said website program books, social media, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, I don't even know what else, just so much press <laughs> releases, right? Yeah. There's just all kinds of things. And yet consistently we use jargon and technical language about our art form. And so almost always there are other words we can use that communicate the same thing uh, in a way that does use words people understand. And that is not dumbing it down. That's meeting people where they are in a way that like rolls out the welcome wagon, not alienates them. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of the hindsight bias and also just how organizations are run and how we market, do you think that simply to continue perpetuating a tradition of how things are done? And would you say this is like one of our major pitfalls? Yeah, <laughs> if I'm being honest, right? Yeah, that's a major, it is a major pitfall, the way things have always been done. And here's what blows my mind about it, though, is because we see the trends of our industry. We see that, like, you look at a graph of an audience, and it's going down over mm-hmm. the last, not just post-COVID, but the last, like, 10, 20 years. And there are other numbers to put with that, just so everybody has some more context. It, it was 2014 when four orchestras in America single ticket revenue surpassed subscription revenue. That's another indicator just of less loyalty. More people are coming once, but not committing to more frequency, that type of thing. Of donors, 80% don't renew their gift. I'm sorry, of first-time donors, 80% don't renew their gift, right? There's just all these statistics that people are becoming less loyal. And so for us to continue to do things the way they've always been done, there's beginning to be a shift, like the very beginning of it. What I was Mm going to say is like, gosh, it makes me want to bang my head against the wall. (laughs) But uh, because we see the outcomes, like to me, I'm like, isn't that the definition of insanity when you keep doing the same thing and hoping for different results? So on one hand, like I get really fired up, but then also I do, I am starting, starting just to see the change. It doesn't feel fast enough. It doesn't always feel Mm -hmm. like enough, but it is at least for some organizations and definitely a growing body of individuals. There is more of this realization of like, no, 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 the way things are done, not working for us so much. Yeah. And I feel like like that shift is beginning. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the people like I'm, I'm a doctoral student. I feel like a lot of people I'm in school with, we, we feel this and we're like, we want things to be different as well. Like with concerts I've put on in the conference, I've put on like we like me and my team really try to focus on making things different and so I'm I'm hopeful that the younger generation coming up is starting to like be incentivized to do to break this quote-unquote tradition of how things are done and yeah I sure hope so sorry no no totally I was just gonna say I think I think sometimes it depends a lot on the I think the school environment that you're in too Mm -hmm. I, I just have to say because some of the part of the problem are the way music is taught through mm-hmm. through like university levels so just to like get on my soapbox a little bit there it's not universally true there are many many teachers professors who are just as forward thinking as you and your colleagues are but sometimes they're not and so that perpetuates the way yeah. things have always been done and as that's well. a that's a great point because i i can say confidently that the school i'm at is very supportive on entrepreneurial endeavors whereas my undergrad school maybe not so much <laughs> Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was also reading a bunch of your articles and we, you touched a little bit on like how we f- market and fundraise. And I was really interested if you on having you speak on your fundraising articles that you've that you wrote. I was really interested on avoiding the word gala. And when you did your once and done fundraising, which it was really fascinating to read. And I was wondering if you could tell everyone a little bit about that and how that how these kind of fundraising endeavors really impact how you go about fundraising for your organizations. I love that you, you like went into the archives for these. This is great. <laughs> these stories. They're, they're awesome still really reads. Popular, those articles to this day. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So we'll take gala first. I, um, the title of it of the article, I think is like, don't say gala, yeah. never say gala or something like that. I just thought, you know, if we're having this conversation, this is back when I was leading the California symphony, if we're having this conversation about how do we be more approachable, all these things you and I've already talked about today, how do we really ch- change the vernacular in order to, be more welcoming to more people. I was like, this word gala, I think it's got to go, at least mm-hmm. for where we were as an institution at that time. I just, I mean, we knew we needed new blood. And so I was like, well, then I think probably that language has to go. And so we just, we just shifted it. It wasn't even a big deal, really. We just started mm-hmm. saying like, let's call it a benefit. That still implies we are raising money. We are cause driven. We need you to show up and be generous. Let's call it you know, name the event. We had different like types of events and we would name it something fun and then say like as the sub headline, you know, a fundraiser for the California Symphony, right? So we were not trying to like pull a fast one of like show mm-hmm. up and then, oh, now we're going to ask you for money. You know, we were trying to, so we were trying to be very clear, but just this word gala, it was just so unclear. Like, oh, is that black tie? Is that, do I have to have a tuxedo or a fancy gown? Mm-hmm. And so part of like changing that language or like that's only for longtime aficionados. Like we were just trying to just avoid any kind of connotations with that word. I don't, I don't, I've kind of, I've, I've evolved a bit in my thinking. Like, I don't think it's a total dirty word. I just mm-hmm. think that, I just think there are other words to help yeah. us. It's right in the category and there are other words to help and us. Some people might it. feel like yeah. that excludes them from the event maybe. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I just thought if, if there's like that risk associated with a, a word, choose a different word. Mm-hmm. That's just how I felt about that. So and then sure enough, the article goes on to say, yeah, with all these um, vernacular changes, and we created these, oh, yeah, we started using the word fun to describe our events, like <laughs> what orchestra uses the word fun, right? Like, oh, gosh, that's funny. <laughs> Not so many. <laughs> and so we just thought, well, what if we, what if we start trying to have fun around here? You know? And so then sure enough, we surpassed all our revenue goals every year. We were making more money. We mm-hmm. were bringing in new people, all those things. So check, check, check. So that was that one. And then I'll quickly touch on the once and done campaign. That was I so agree. fascinating. Super interesting. It feels like <laughs> you're like day, psychologically <laughs> analyzing like everyone in your donor base. That's what it felt like. It was so crazy. <laughs> hundred percent, hundred percent. We are, oh my gosh. Okay. Total tangent sidebar, but like we are in this business to make money because mm-hmm. that's how we fund the art we produce. And so I really, really believe this, that we've got to be more strategic about how do we optimize the business side in order to give us like freedom and liberation on the artistic side. So, and not sacrifice it. So, okay. With that tangent, <laughs> um, the once and done campaign. So this came out of Research from the University of Chicago, the professor there, his name is John List. And for years now, he's done all kinds of research on nonprofits and what motivates donor behavior. And he's got tons of interesting articles himself on his findings. So one of the research um, projects he did was with this idea of super cold donors. So super cold donors, meaning they had given to the organization at one point before, and then 
dropped off. Mm -hmm. So at least like three years had not given again. They had gone stone cold, kind of dead in the water. One time Gabe now, like, doesn't matter how many times they've been asked, like, nah, nothing, nothing, nothing. Okay. So it was kind of like, what do we do with these donors that like, at one point they showed interest proclivity. They even like generously opened their wallet, whatever the gift level, how do we get them back? We're desperate now, right? Like nothing mm-hmm. has worked in the last three years. Okay. With that group of people, he did this experiment that we then just copied, mm-hmm. straight up copied at California Symphony. And the experiment was for that group of cold, dead in the water donors. When the next fundraising appeal letter went in the mail, put it on the envelope because it's the first thing they see before they even open yeah. the letter, but put it on the envelope, put it on the inside. But the whole idea is that it's once and done. You could give once. If you give once, you can check a box and we'll never contact you again if you want. Mm-hmm. Like that's the idea. So the outside of the envelope is like once and done. I can't remember something like we'll never, con- if you want, we'll never contact you again or something yeah. like that. Cause they did, cause that's the first hurdle. Like make sure they don't just throw it away. Like they have every other solicitation we've sent them over the last three years. So like something to try to not make it go in the round file. Okay. So then on the inside, that's what it's about. It's kind of, it was a version of the standard appeal that everybody else got, you know, here's the work we do in our community. Here's the kids we serve each year, Here, you know, all the things that we would normally say in a fundraising letter, but their response device, like where you actually say like, you know, I'd like to give this amount and here's my credit card number or whatever. Um, their version was, and I think we said it in the letter too, but basically like, we know you haven't given to us in a while. If you want us to leave you alone, check this box and we'll never contact you again. Okay. John List research when he did this, I forget the exact numbers, but basically so outperformed anything else that had been tried with that stone cold group. Like they did Mm -hmm. respond and almost all of them did not check the box. So suddenly what you've done is like reactivated these donors that nothing else worked. You're like I said, you're totally desperate going for this Hail Mary and the Hail Mary worked. And I was like, oh my gosh, we got to try this. We've got to try this because we were in the same situation. Every, every nonprofit is, you've got this big backlog of people who just have not, yeah. not renewed. You can see my previous stat of 80% of first time donors yeah. don't ever give again. And so, exactly. so I thought, wow, we've got, we've got this giant list of people that think we're ready for our Hail Mary. <laughs> so we did. And sure enough, same thing. We had, I think the results were 17 times more people from that group gave than the pre- prior year solicitation to that stone cold group. Um, I think did not, not one person check the box or, or something like that. I mean, it was yeah. one or zero people checked it. I can't remember like basically nobody. And they're like, call it, it out. Just, <laughs> yeah. Just like such a success across the board. And we reactivated so many of these donors. So anyways, I just, <laughs> it, there's, there is something very psychological about it and I am here for yeah. it. <laughs> Have you done it again or was it, have you only done it that one time? We only did it that one time. So this is what I would recommend for organizations. Um, I, I no longer work at the California Symphony. So that's one of the reasons why it's just not under my leadership now. But um, that kind of appeal, it's not profitable in and of itself. Because what happens, you know, if you're mailing all these stone cold donors, they, they're the least responsive group right and Mm -hmm. so it's not it's not about making a profit you know you spend all this money to print the letters and do the mailing and all that kind of stuff it's about reactivating them so that they give you like if you're if we're doing our jobs right then we're renewing that gift and we're like setting up long-term revenue Mm -hmm. not just this one not truly the once and done revenue so 
I recommend to organizations when you do something like that, don't do it every year because you're not going to make money on it every mm-hmm. You're not going to make a profit on it every year. And so I forget what year we did that, but I think like two years later, maybe is when I had left. It was something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's why we didn't do it again. Yeah. Well, I just think that's so cool. Kind of like calling out your donors being like, do you still like us? You know? Um, and yeah. it's obvious that you're, you, you're really trying to dive into your donors and your audience's like headspace and psychologically trying to be like, what do you want? But I also feel like you're really in tune with like feeling like a theme that I, I got from like reading over your website was your a common theme is how you feel these organizations have a lack of feeling and connection with our audiences. And when you say this is true and where do you think this stems from? Great question. For hundreds of years as a sector, we have optimized the art. I mean, for mm-hmm. hundreds of years, right? Classical music, we have um, pursued the artistic side with such rigor, such um, just such discipline. And that is why we have an exceptional talent pool. There are so many talented musicians, as we know, way more exceptionally talented musicians than there are jobs available. Like part of that is because these hundreds of years, we've really, really optimized the artistic side. Every orchestra sounds, every professional orchestra at least sounds pretty darn good. You don't have to be the nearest Philharmonic, right? You can be a regional orchestra. And I'm just constantly blown away at just like the level of quality. And it really, it really speaks to that. So the business side though, that by comparison uh, has only come into sort of a recognized subdiscipline of management has only happened in the last 30 or so years. And in my upcoming book, I talk about this more in one of the chapters, mm-hmm. but it was only during these last 30, 40 years that even the business side even kind of came into the fold. And so hundreds of years of <laughs> getting really good at one thing, 30, 40 years of getting better at the other thing, right? And mm-hmm. so as a as just like a professionalization of a discipline, mm-hmm. artistic side is way farther ahead. So we're playing a little catch up. That's one of the things. I think two, what's sort of perpetuating this is it goes back to our education programs. Mm-hmm. We have tons and tons of wonderful music schools, conservatory style training, again, wonderful artists being pumped out every year. And on the management side, when I was in school, I didn't even know that any arts management programs existed. Maybe they did. I just didn't know about them. But Mm -hmm. you heard me say I got two different degrees because in my mind, that was how I could pursue this. Mm -hmm. And now, though, there are many, not as many music schools as, I mean, not as many arts management programs as music schools, but definitely more than there were. Yeah when I was in school. And so I think that's part of it. It's just like this, like, like I say all the time now, our offstage talent needs to match our onstage talent. And if we pursued arts management with the same rigor and discipline that we pursue playing our instruments, Mm -hmm. that would be a game changer for our offstage work. Yeah, that's, that's true. I never really thought about it that way. We don't really prioritize like the training of our offstage as much as our onstage. Exactly. Yeah. But I feel like this talks like kind of feeds into like you were talking about like vertical and horizontal components of like designing an organization, like putting our community at the center of everything. Like what are some ways that an organization can make sure that they're really prioritizing their community, their, what their audience needs and wants? First and foremost, it's who's on staff, who's making decisions. So that includes board too. Who's making decisions? 
if the decision makers aren't representative of the community, I don't think we have much hope to really serve the community. <laughs> so um, I think it's, I think it has to start with how we're hiring, who we're hiring. There's so much to say about what needs to happen for more fair and equitable hiring off stage and on stage. There's a whole lot to say there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how are we bringing on new board members? So I think that's the first thing who is making decisions. And if those people aren't reflective of the community, it's going to be real tough to, <laughs> to yeah. actually serve that community. Um, and what else could I tell you? I think, okay, so who's making decisions is one simultaneous to that, you know, and it kind of gets flipped. This is what gets almost prioritized first, but like, what are we performing? How does that represent the community? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's an easier decision to make. You know, we plan next season. You can plan a more representative season, that type of thing. So I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that if that's the only way somebody's trying to quote unquote be representing their community or serving their community, then it's a bit performative if these other things aren't happening as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a couple. And of course, another like caveat of this is how the music we want to perform is often by minorities or by women. And then that music is way more difficult to get your hands on. At least I've found that. And how do you feel like you deal with, with that with, especially for like young organizations who are on an extremely limited budget? Oh, that's a tough one. I think, I mean, first and foremost, it's something like mission driven like that. Like you value these performers. Mm -hmm. I can tell, I can hear it in your voice. Like don't give up. You have like, we have to have multiple people like pursuing this so that our, the publishers realize, oh, there's demand for this, right? Like, mm-hmm. so we have to generate that demand. Those, you know, there's that kind of stuff. But also, I think um, I'm a big proponent of mixing repertoire. So it's not, mm-hmm. there's a time and a place, I suppose, to do the all women's concert, the Black History Month concert. Like, there's a lot that we see the Dia de los Muertos concerts, you know, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year concerts, all those things. There's nothing wrong with those, like, um, thematic type Mm -hmm. programs and they sell they bring in their intended audience usually so it's i'm not trying to say it's bad per se but there is research around this idea of we're talking about representation multiculturalism there's research that shows that really the blending of rep of genres actually is what draws in more people Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, like, I'm not one dimensional. I love music by women composers. Yeah. There's also a few of the war horses that I still really enjoy too. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so mixing it, I'm a big fan, which in terms of like, how do we help the budget side of it? That helps too, because Mm -hmm. it's a lot cheaper to play Mozart or something in the public domain than it is to try to find like that rarer, harder to get your hands on piece um, that maybe costs a little bit more too. Mm -hmm. So mixing it up helps with the budget. And I I completely agree. I I do that a lot in my own programming. I often get a kick out of doing like mostly women and like one male piece because that's usually what happens to the women piece. And I'm like, oh, I love it. It's equal. Love it. Yes. (laughs) Um, And you kind of touched on this while we were talking, but obviously you have a book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit of a rundown on what people can get from reading your book? Yeah, the, it's a lot of the topics we've already hit today. So it really is this idea of how do we optimize the business side of the arts? It's called Run It Like a Business. And that name it has kind of two different meanings. So one meaning or interpretation, I'm so curious if anybody listening, have you ever been around, it's usually board members who tend to say this, but not always, but maybe in a board meeting who somebody says, you know, we just need to run this place like a business. <laughs> 
So like my hands raised, I've been in plenty of board meetings where I hear a version of that. And yeah. I used to really hate it, really roll my eyes at it because I thought it meant I wasn't doing enough or I was somehow like, I don't know. Um, so that's one interpretation, which is kind of intentional. I want board members to read this book. I feel like if we don't, I already said, if our boards don't change, nothing really changes. Yeah. So I believe that. Okay. So that's one interpretation. But the other interpretation, which is really more serving the structure of the book is most of my work. And hopefully anybody listening can tell just from our conversation today, really brings in strategies from outside the arts and applies them to what we're doing. So, you know, we talked about user experience. That definitely is something that I learned from the for-profit sector. There's a, so there's a chapter on that. Every chapter is a different strategy that we can adopt from, from the business world. And then just to give a couple more examples, there's a chapter on the subscription model and the membership economy. We haven't talked about that today, but subscriptions are thriving everywhere yet in the arts. Some people say it's dying and, or dead as a model. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't think if we ask Netflix, if the subscription model is dead, they would agree. So, um, uh, so there's a whole chapter on like, what are we doing differently? And it turns out we're doing some things differently than these other brands that have really successful subscription models. So there's that. There is a chapter on fair and equitable hiring. There is a chapter on organizational structure. There's a chapter on our digital content. How do we use our digital content to, to drive people to our analog in-person performance? Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. Run it like a business. Let's optimize the business side. That's the part that, as we said earlier, we're really like trying to play catch up a bit. And if our offstage work matched the exceptional level of our onstage work, yeah. I believe I believe that's where the future of the industry can really thrive. That's amazing. I mean, I know I, I'm planning on reading it. It sounds amazing. And I also, on that note, is what can small, like just starting out organizations or someone who's thinking, hey, I might want to start an organization. What can they pull from that book? And what kind of first steps should they take to make sure they have a successful organization with all these kind of ideals in mind? I think for, I was going to say smaller, but any organization, but especially mm -hmm. if you're smaller or just starting up really what kind of what we were saying about iteration before, like it is not possible to go from zero to a hundred, especially not running an ensemble. Like there's just so many moving pieces. Like you can start, but I'm just saying like any like idea of like, as some sort of like weird perfection, like we're going to launch and we're going to have sold out concerts and you know, all these things. Like, of course that's the dream, mm -hmm. but let's be, I'm just trying to say, give ourselves grace. I'm not trying to shatter dreams here. I'm saying give yourself <laughs> grace. So, and so the idea is that no, no, what we're going to do when we can't, we can't as a baby ensemble, like do everything that's in this book. Most organizations probably can't do everything in this book like tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea of like, okay, let's pick a few things that as you're reading it, you're like, I really resonate with that okay, I can see how that applies to what I want to do at my ensemble. You know, just pick one or two things and then optimize that. Mm -hmm. And maybe it takes, maybe it's like, okay, for the next six months, we're going to work on these two things. We're just really going to only try to get good at that. We're really going to try to get good at making the language on our website more approachable, more accessible, like we talked about at the beginning or whatever. And then once you feel like, okay, yeah, we've got that down, then add in the next strategy. Mm -hmm. That's my approach. Iteration for sure. Test it, get good at it, build that muscle, then add in the next thing. And that is how change happens. That is what the research shows. It's never, almost never, like a big, grand, sweeping mm -hmm. thing. It just doesn't work that way. Change happens and organizations are built successfully by incremental 
yeah progress yeah, and you had another article that said some essentially that thing and it's it, and you're like it's all in the details i was like yes <laughs> yes yes <laughs> can you tell i deep dived into all your articles i was like oh these are awesome i love it <laughs> thank you um I was also wondering from maybe the person who doesn't want to be an admin, but also really cares about making sure that they're keeping their art alive. What what would you say, just like the normal musician who wants to go into a symphony or maybe wants to teach, like, what do you, what would you say is important for them to do to perpetuate this kind of work in the community? Listening to these conversations is such a good step because the days of yore where you could play your instrument really well, win a job in a major symphony orchestra, and then just show up and play the gig I would say those days, <laughs> if they're not gone, they need to be gone because <laughs> more is needed. Yeah. So we need musicians who say, I am going to play my instrument exceptionally well. And I'm proud of that. But also there's more here. Like if I don't, like if I don't have an audience, I don't have a job. Like we need that mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Not I show up and somebody else figures out how to get the audience. Right. I feel like yeah. that's, a, that's a shift for some artists. So, um, so yeah, being like listening to conversations like this, being like, okay, I see that. How can I support my administrative staff? That's huge. Like when artists are like, mm-hmm. you know, can I, do you need help going on the donor lunch? Like just bringing a musician to a donor lunch, like all you had to do is tell them how you started playing your instrument and the donor's really into that. <laughs> like, you know, That's it's like, point. it's not, uh, you know, yeah, like you just have to show up and be yourself, but that is more compelling than me as the executive director saying oh let me tell you about this musician instead just like bring the musician Mm -hmm. so um you know things like that there are ways that artists can support or like with digital content like we need to capture some things like okay be the artist that says okay i'm not going to scrutinize the quality of this recording because it's not really about that for the 30 second instagram clip right Mm, so that's i'm at fault for that (laughs) yeah i think i mean it goes back to like how how so many of us were trained yeah the way we were brought up in this industry and so to be the artist that says for that use case that's not the most important thing mm-hmm. how can i help right so um yeah that, i think that there are many ways like the, it, these small ways that actually really make a big difference in how artists contribute yeah and i was, i think it also speaks to how we're so used to not engaging with our audiences like they're this is a, something that I know bothers me when I go to concerts, when they bow, they play, they bow, and they walk off. You never heard them speak once. I feel like you're kind of tapping into that, how we need to get used to talking to our audiences. Yeah. How, what kind of advice would you give for people who are nervous or not used to doing that, that kind of having those kind of conversations? Practice. Yeah. Ask a friend who, ask a friend who doesn't have a music degree. Here's what I'm performing next weekend. Do you know these composers? What are your questions? Mm-hmm. Ask them, you know, what what's not clear? And then, so it's like your own mini focus group, but at least it's in the comfort of like a friend or a family member or something. And then take those questions and instead of like judging, because I feel like that's so much like the um, knee-jerk reaction, like, but why don't they know who Rachmaninoff is? Everybody knows who, yeah. who Rachmaninoff is. And it's like, well, actually not everybody knows. Like, I know that's a very common composer name among music majors, but mm-hmm. you know, Again, not everybody knows. So whatever it is, like fight the knee-jerk reaction to be like, they don't know, they should know. And instead think, they don't know. Oh, I'm going to help them learn it. Yeah. And then from there, you can think about what you're going to say. The other way to go is just say, just talk about what makes a piece interesting. Like yeah. not, um, not you know, we're going to listen to how theme A contrasts with the second theme. You know, not that kind of stuff, but like, 
I picked this piece because I was trying to program an all-female program with one male because mm -hmm. that's kind of how it's normally done. Like, that's an interesting tidbit for most audiences to know who then might have this moment of like, oh my gosh, you're right. That is how it's mostly done. Like, you know what I mean? And you mm -hmm. just help like connect the dots for them. So that's the other way to go is just say, why did you, why did you pick this? What makes it interesting for you? Yeah, it's exactly. And I feel like when you talk about that, the audience then has something to hold on to when they're listening to it, especially if it's a, a work that they don't know, which most of these works by underrepresented composers, they won't know. Right. And I guess to close on some of our, um, all of our questions, uh, I just want to ask, what advice do you have for any woman wanting to get into arts admin? What's my advice? I would say this is a, this is a profession that in so many ways, like we have so many wonderful women working and we need more. Mm -hmm. And it's also a profession where I think there is a bit of a glass ceiling now, if I'm being completely honest. So um, there's another article of mine where it talks about the bigger the budget, the more likely the CEO is male. <laughs> I um, did not see that one. And I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, the honest answer is though, but is that, but we need more women. Like, we have amazing women and we need women to not give up and to keep being a little loud mm -hmm. about it. And I'll try not to get on the soapbox of all the research of just I mean, women you're in general. We, <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll very quickly say, like, because women have been as a whole a bit more sidelined, a bit put in a box, a bit, you know, across so many different sectors, you know, really having to like break our own glass ceilings and make our own paths because of those kind of things that mm -hmm. do exist and the data backs it up. The research shows that women are more creative. We are more effective in many ways. And of course, it's not universally true. Of course, yeah, there's some course. men who are incredibly effective leaders that, well, let's be, let's be fair. But at the same time, like on the whole, these like systemic issues have made us systemically great leaders and so mm -hmm. i guess the advice is if that is your interest do it i hope to meet you and don't give up because at some point almost every woman yeah. i talk to in this field that has a career maybe true for musicians too at some point you want to throw in the towel so don't just stick with it that that bet i think that's like the token of truth to take with you just don't give up i mean i see it every day too so it, it's just really encouraging seeing someone like you like super successful making a huge impact like I just, everything I read on you, I'm like, oh, you're actually doing all these amazing things that I w wish I saw like when I was younger. Thank you. And I think you're going about in a, like a fantastic way. And I love how you're engaging with your social media audience. We didn't even talk about social media, but we've talked about a lot of other more important things. Part two, part two someday. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ways that we have to engage in our audiences and we have to be able to think creative, creatively. <laughs> and um, I just love what you're doing. And if you have any other advice you want to leave us with now would be the time to give us more of your amazing knowledge. Oh, I don't know if I have more advice, but I just want to say thank you for what you're doing, like hosting these conversations. Like this is exactly more of what we need and want. And I'm just really honored to be a part of it for, oh, thank you know, you. a half hour or however long. We got about 40 minutes of content. Um, <laughs> but I mean, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and it was exciting to talk to you. I'm sure I could talk to you for like three more hours and ask you so many more questions it was just it was hard to even pick what to ask you um so just thank you for letting me do that and um we'll def i can't wait to see what else you do in classical music in general i'm just yeah. so excited to keep up with what you're gonna do thank you so much it means a lot
All right. Well, thank you for coming on. And if anyone wants to learn more about Aubrey Bergauer, you will link her website and our on the episode description. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. And I can't wait for our next, our next episode. Mm-hmm.